Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good morning. Good to see all of you. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Proverbs 6. We're going to be in Proverbs 6 this morning. We are in a study of the book of Proverbs this summer. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who'd love to get a copy of God's Word to you. Again, Proverbs 6, it's right in the middle of your Bible. So if you kind of open it towards the middle and move your way to the right, you will probably uh, find it. And uh, as you're turning there, as always, if you would like to keep that Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that as our gift. We want everyone in our church to have their Bible in their home. And... Uh, let me let you in on a little bit of a trade secret here as you're turning into Proverbs 6. One of the things that all of our pastors do at Harvest when we preach is we have a goal. It's that we want our preaching. We don't just want to tell you what the Bible says, but we want to tell you why it matters and why we need to listen and why we need to respond to it right now. We want our preaching to be urgent. And so we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and that every week when we gather together, the Lord has a word for us that impacts our life. We don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So when I preach, oftentimes I will start a message with giving you some really relevant statistics about what I'm going to talk about or, or by bringing you in with telling you a story. And here's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get buy-in. I'm trying to get you to lean forward. I'm trying to communicate to you, hey, what we're going to talk about in God's word is relevant and important. Well, there's good news for us this morning as we're in Proverbs 6, is I don't have to do any of that stuff this morning to get your attention. I just have to tell you what we're talking about, right? And if you have your notes, you see it in front of you. Today, we are talking about the issue of sex, and we're going to hear warnings against sexual sin and adultery. Feel that awkwardness right now, right? That's me having your attention. That's you guys leaning in. See how easy that was? And uh, here's the truth. Sex and sexuality, it's not just a dominating topic of conversation in 2023 in America. It's always been a dominating topic of conversation. And the truth is, one of the main topics in the book of Proverbs is Solomon giving us warnings and wisdom in the realm of sexuality. And so here's the truth. I would not be loving you and serving you well. And I also don't think that I could look myself in the mirror if we chose to gloss over this topic and we didn't dedicate a week to getting after it. What we're going to look at this morning is timely, it's important, and I'm excited because I believe it's going to be very impactful. So if you're ready and with me, say, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Well, before we jump into the passage, we first need to take a moment and talk about the author of this proverb, and that's King Solomon. So if you're taking notes, the first point is the man. And what I want to show you is, is that Solomon writes with a history of failure in the area of sex and sexuality. Solomon was a man from a far from clean track record in this issue. Uh, Solomon, you remember, he was the son of King David. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's the one who won the promised land for uh, the people of Israel and kind of established Israel as a nation. 
Solomon uh, was David's son. And Solomon, if you remember, his mom was a woman named Bathsheba. And if you remember that story, David and Bathsheba committed adultery together. David basically forced Bathsheba to marry him and then got her husband killed in battle. So Solomon grew up with a reputation or brokenness in his family around the issue of adultery. And when Solomon becomes king, we hear this story in 2 Chronicles, he's a young kid and it says the Lord visits him in a dream. And Solomon's like, God, I don't know how to be king. I don't know how to lead these people. I don't know how to lead this great nation. I'm terrified. God, would you help me and would you grant me wisdom? And the Lord is so pleased by Solomon's request. He goes, not only am I going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you unsurpassed wealth and unsurpassed time of peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. And that's true. Solomon's reign is marked by peace and prosperity. Solomon's able to build the temple for the Lord. His dad, David, wanted to build it, but God was like, no, David, there's too much blood on your hands. You were a warrior king. This is going to be your son's job. And Solomon does it, and it's amazing. And it says the presence of the Lord dwelt in the temple. Okay, but here was a problem with Solomon. There was a large portion in Solomon's life where his heart turned from the Lord, and he wanted to live for himself. And he quickly pursued sexual experiences and freedom to the farthest possible degree. In 1 Kings 11, we read about it. It says this. It said, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Okay, one of the things I appreciate about Solomon is no matter where we agree or disagree on the areas of sex and sexuality, I think everyone in here could admit 700 wives is a bad idea, right? (laughs) Like this dude was nuts, right? Can you turn to your neighbor and say, that's not gonna work? (laughs) Right, like it was crazy. He pursued this this marriage and, and wives to a degree that all of us would say is nuts. Now, can I make a counter argument? I think if we could teleport King Solomon into 2023 and he learned of this thing we have called the internet and the absolute ocean of sexually explicit material that's available to all of us on our phones, I think he would look at us and say, I'm not the crazy one. You guys are the crazy ones, right? So before we get too self-righteous, we need to understand things aren't way better today than they were back then. It's interesting, in Proverbs 5, Solomon even admits, he goes, rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's saying, I should have followed the Lord. I should have been content with the wife my, uh, the Lord gave me. I shouldn't have run to these things. I have failed in this area. But here's what I want you to hear. When we get into Proverbs 6, Solomon is not writing from a place of arrogance. He's not writing from a place of victory or I told you so or man, I did it the right way. So look at Proverbs 6, verse 20. Here's what he says. He says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them around your heart always, tie them around your neck, and when you walk, they will lead you, and when you lie down, they will watch over you, and when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Hey, the next thing I want you to know about Solomon is notice the tone he starts this conversation with. The tone is loving concern. He's not angry. 
He's not judgmental, but he is writing as a father would to his son saying, please hear me, please listen to me. I want the best for you. I want to help you. I want to save you from a life of pain. Church, look at me. You know that tone matters, right? And especially when it comes to the issue of sex and sexual sin, tone matters a lot. And unfortunately, I see way too many Christians fall in too familiar ditches when it comes to the issue of tone in the conversation on sex. The first ditch we fall into is I call we freeze up and we shut up. Right? Most of the time when the topic of sexuality comes up, I see people freeze up and shut up. And you know why? Because sex is very personal and it's an awkward topic of conversation. Right? Some of you are thinking to yourself right now, I wish you would freeze up and shut up, Cal, because I feel really awkward. Sorry, I can't do that for you. Um, it was interesting. A couple weeks ago, my son, Bo, he's going into fifth grade and uh, he's getting to that age where um, he's starting to ask questions about things like puberty, and he's starting to notice girls in a different way, and some things are changing. So Mary and I are like, you know, Mary's like, hey, Cal, it's, it's time to have that talk with him. So I went on a walk with my son, Bo, a couple weeks ago, and I totally bait and switched him. At first, we were talking about soccer, and we were talking about life, and he was having a great time. And I said, hey, Bo, there's something else I want to talk with you about. And we started to talk, started to give him the sex talk. And it's interesting, we were walking side by side, just hanging out. And the second I started to talk about it, he took two steps ahead of me and wouldn't look at me. <laughs> and he's like, this is so painfully uncomfortable, right? You could just see him like seize up with awkwardness. And, and here's what I said. I'm like, I get that it's awkward. It's not the, the conversation I would choose to have either. But I said, you know what? I'm your dad and I love you. And I want to protect you, and I want to be there for you, and I want you to come to me and talk about these things, and I for sure want you to hear about this stuff from me before you hear it from your moron friends, right? <laughs> Here's the problem when you freeze up and shut up. You disqualify yourself from being part of the solution or helping anyone else. And listen, I have a decade of youth ministry experience under my belt. So here's what I can say with some authority. We are living in the midst of a generation of students whose parents have failed them because they have frozen up and they have shut up on the issues of sex and sexuality and they have learned it from every other possible source but their folks. The second ditch we fall into is anger and judgment. And what I see far too often is because of where culture is moving in these areas and its differences between God's word and the culture, I see Christians getting more and more hurt, more and more frustrated, more and more angry. So when we talk about it, we just want to yell and be angry and pick a fight on Facebook, right? And the second we start yelling, everyone stops listening. Everyone entrenches themselves. Nothing is actually accomplished. We get mad and we feel good, but nothing changes, the tone matters, and I want you to see Solomon's tone. It's, I love you, and I care for you, and I'm for you, so I'm going to enter into this topic because I want what's best. All right, here's the warning. It's this. It's that sexual sin will destroy you. Sexual sin will destroy you. Look at verse 23. It says, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. All right, so he talks about a commandment being a lamp, and we need to ask ourselves, what commandment, what is he talking about? 
Well, the original readers of the Proverbs would know exactly what he's referring to. When Solomon's referring to the commandment, he's actually referring back to the Ten Commandments and specifically the command, you shall not commit adultery. Do you know that the only institution that God ordained before sin entered the world was marriage? That marriage in the family is the first institution God created after creating the world. And so it's no wonder it is the thing that is most often under attack by the enemy. Right in Genesis 2, it says this. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Listen to me. Sex is designed to be a gift between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant before God and to one another called marriage. The Bible defines any sexual activity outside of that construct as adultery. And so what I want to do is I want to take a second and I want to show you something fascinating about the Ten Commandments. Throw up the next slide. So these are the Ten Commandments. We did a whole sermon series on this last fall, breaking these down one by one. But here's how they break out. The first four are vertical commandments. It has to do with our relationship to God, right? No other gods before me, no idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That has everything to do with us and God. The next six commandments are horizontal. It's how do we live and interact with one another? All right, so here are the six. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. All right, out of those six commands, listen to me, do you know that our culture today would still say that five of those are virtues and should be followed? And that if you want to have a prosperous, healthy, safe life, you need to follow five of those six commands? Like if you were to ask anyone, man, is family important and should you honor your mom and dad? Most would say, yeah, rebellious kids tend to live hard lives, right? Should you not murder? Totally. That's a terrible idea. Should you not steal? Yes, you're going to go to jail if you steal. Should you not lie under oath? Totally. That's against the law. Is it healthy to live a life constantly wanting what you don't have? No, that's going to make you miserable. So even today in America in 2023, we would say that five of those six horizontal commands are good and right and virtuous. But the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we've been like, uh, we want nothing to do with that. That's outdated. That's backwoods stuff. No one can be expected to live like that. It's nonsense. And what we have said is, is when it comes to the issue of sex and sexuality, as long as you're not hurting anyone, as long as you're not taking advantage of anyone, you are kind of free to explore and do what you want, and no one should judge you or speak into it. In fact, most young people, because they don't have parents helping them with this, when they get into high school and college, the issue of sex and sexuality, they're just kind of told, figure it out on your own. Good luck. And it's interesting we see in verse 23, Solomon says, discipline in sexuality is the key to life. We have rejected the idea that there needs to be discipline around the area of sex. So we need to ask the question, is the rejection of the seventh commandment, is it helping us? Is it leading us to freedom and joy in life or is it hurting us? And um, I could spend the next two hours if I wanted to depressing all of us with real-time stats and datas on how pornography is absolutely devastating our society. When you start to investigate pornography's connection to things like addiction, 
anxiety, depression, suicide, sexual abuse, sexual crimes, sex trafficking. Look at me. So much of the absolute ugly and broken in our society, pornography sits right at the heart of. I could get into stats equally as depressing on the impact of adultery and how that leads to kids growing up without parents and the breakdown of the family unit and what that does to kids' mental health and their anxiety and their depression. And unfortunately, the ones who are often hurt most by this are women and children, and that grieves the Lord, and it should grieve our heart as well. Okay, but here's what I would tell you. What data and sociology would point to is that the safest, best place for kids to grow up in is with a mom and dad who love each other, are committed to each other, honor one another sexually, and are committed to a lifelong relationship together. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. Now listen, is God a father to the fatherless? Absolutely. Does he draw near to the single mom or or to the widow and show up and redeem those things? Totally. But I would argue that data and sociology is showing us that this rejection of discipline in the area of sex is not bringing joy and flourishing, it's doing the exact opposite. But it doesn't just destroy us collectively, it also destroys us individually. And this is what Solomon's going to get into. Look at verse 24. Here's what he says. He says, discipline's the key to life in verse 23. Then in verse 24, he says, to preserve you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. All right, here's what I appreciate about Solomon here. He's not going to lie to us. Here's what he's telling all of us. Sexual temptation's a real thing. That this is an area where it's not easy to be disciplined in. And there are going to be moments where what God calls you to do and what you feel like or what seems easier, what seems best are going to be different. So what he's doing is, is let me give you the warnings about where sexual sin and adultery leads before the moment of temptation, because I want you to set in your heart that you're going to honor the Lord, because in the moment, temptation is real, and it's very, very difficult. And so what he's going to do here in the next 10 verses is he's going to give us five warnings about where adultery leads. Look at verse 26. It says this. It says, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Man, I I love this. The price of a prostitute is only the loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Here's the first warning. You will cheapen the gift that God has given you. Here's what he's saying. He goes, if you want, you can make this gift of sex very, very cheap. It can be sold for a loaf of bread. But then he goes, a married woman hunts down a precious life. He's like, but if you honor the Lord with your sexuality, and if you use sex in the context of marriage, and you're committed to one another, and you're faithful, and you're loyal, it can lead to a life full of joy and satisfaction and blessing. Sex is a gift where we determine its value. He's saying, don't cheapen it. Adultery will cheapen the gift God has given you. Here's the next warning, verse 27. He says this, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? See what he's saying? He's going, this will set your life on fire. You're not gonna get away with it. You're going to get burnt. You you think you can play where it's like, no, I can control this and I can navigate it and I can live a double life. He goes, when you play next to the fire, it's going to set your life aflame. Church, I want you to hear me. 
One of my least favorite parts of being a pastor is I have sat in way too many rooms with couples where one has committed to an affair or an addiction or hidden sexual sin that the other one didn't know about. And can I just say this? In that moment, both are devastated. No one's saying, man, I'm so happy about these decisions and this was such a good move and my life is so much better. It is awful. Solomon in Proverbs 6 is saying as a loving dad, I don't want that for you. It's going to set your life on fire. Look at verse 29, he says this, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. All right, here's what he's saying. The pain of your decision will be greater by a ton than the momentary pleasure. It will cost you more than you want to pay. It will have potentially lifelong implications on your marriage and on your kids and on your friendships and on your reputation. It's this momentary temptation is what he's saying is not worth the pain that is coming. He goes, the thief, if he steals a loaf of bread, he satisfies his appetite. But if he, caught, if he gets caught, he's going to prison for years. It's not worth it. Look at verse 32. He says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. All right, here's the next warning. It's gonna impact your reputation. That it will be a, a, a stain that is not easily removed. People will find out, people will know. He's like, I don't want you to live with that reputation. Then look at verse 34. It says, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation and he will refuse though you multiply. Here's the last warning. It's going to destroy relationship you have with others and it's going to put you in places that you can't dig out of. He's going, there will be irrevocable damage to relationships when adultery is found out. Listen, warning after warning after warning after warning, it's not worth it. Don't play near the fire. It's going to consume you. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of the kind of powerful memories I have growing up is uh, my dad had an office in our house growing up. And uh, some of you might remember this, but he had a, a, one of those big wooden desks that you have in your office. But to protect the wood, there was like a thin layer of glass on top of the desk. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Well, Growing up, every time I was at the computer and at his desk, I noticed he had a sheet of paper that he had slid between the glass and the wood on the desk. And on the paper, it was a very big title. It said this. It said, here are the consequences or the consequences if I morally fail. And he just had a list of six or seven things that would be the consequences to his life if he failed morally. The first was my hypocrisy will cast mud on the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. The second was, I will absolutely devastate the person in this world I love the most, my wife, Kristen. The third was, I will potentially lose relationship and influence over my kids forever. If not, there will be great damage done to my relationship with them. The fourth is, my reputation will be 
dragged through the mud. The fifth was, I will limit my ability to do ministry in the church that I attended. It was just kind of seven or eight things where he's like, man, if I make this decision, here are the consequences. Do you see the wisdom in that? What he's saying is this before the moment of temptation, but before I'm put in a spot where I have to make a choice, I'm going to set my heart and be sober-minded and understand here's where that road is leading for my life. And it's not joy and it's not fulfillment and it's not fruitfulness. It's the opposite of those things. Are we living with wisdom in this area? So the warning is, is it will destroy you. The question becomes, what now? All right, like, like Cal, I, I get it, but what, what, what am I supposed to do now? And that's where I want to turn our attention to our hope. And our hope is Jesus Christ himself. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John 8. We're going to be in John 8. If just turn over to the right in your Bible a few books. You should find it. And as you're turning there, I, I want you to pay attention. All right, here's what I feel in this moment right now. Here's what I know to be true. That for most of the people in here, talking about sex and adultery is difficult because when we look at our lives, there is past sexual sin that is part of that equation. Maybe it's our sin, maybe it's sin that has been committed against us. And to even talk about these things, what happens is there's this temptation to be like, I have ruined my chance at a godly and good life that I am worthless, that I am dirty, that I should be ruled by fear and shame. And it's like, I hate that you're talking about this, Cal, because my failure is very, very present in my life. We believe that somehow this has caused us to disqualify ourselves from God's love. Look at me. This is where the good news of Jesus Christ in the most real way saves us and transforms us and changes the equation. All right, in John 8, there's a story where Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees, they, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him in trouble. They hate Jesus. They want him dead. So what they do is, is they somehow set up a set of circumstances where there's a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. I don't know if they tricked her. I don't know if she had a bad reputation, but they catch a woman caught in the act of adultery. They catch her sleeping with a man who's not her husband. And they drag her before Jesus, kind of throw her on the ground at the feet of Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what should we do with her? What do you say? And here's the trap. You see, under Mosaic law, adultery was punishable by stoning. All right? So the right punishment was she should be put to death. Here's the trap. Israel is occupied by Rome. They don't have the power to execute capital judgment. So the box they're trying to put Jesus in is if he says, hey, let's stone her, he's breaking Roman law and they can have him arrested. If he says, no, let's not stone her, now he's a false prophet because he's not upholding the law of God. It's actually a pretty good box they're trying to box him with. Okay, but Jesus just ignores him. And it says he just bends down and starts writing something in the sand. And that's where we pick up the story in John 8, verse 7. Here's what it says. It says this, and they continue to ask him, like they won't let this go. And he stood up and said to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. All right, Jesus looks at a woman who has sinned 
who is guilty and who stands condemned because of her sexual sin. And look what he does. He defends her, he advocates for her, he saves her. And when everyone else leaves because they have sinned in their life and can't throw the stone, Jesus is there, you know why? Because he never sinned. He could have rightfully said, I am the one who condemns you. And he says, I do not condemn you. And I love you and I care for you and I save you and I'm here for you. And look at me, he says that to each and every one of us today. Listen, everyone comes here having failed to love the Lord, honor the Lord, worship the Lord, follow the Lord like he deserves, amen? And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus paid our penalty before God, that we have right relationship because Jesus stood in the gap. That's why we praise him. That's why we love him. That's why we honor him because he gave us life when we deserve death. And then guess what else Jesus does? He redeems what we have broken. And I could tell you dozens and dozens of stories of marriages where there has been sexual sin in the past and they're on the brink of divorce and things are really, really bad, but they turn to the Lord and they repent and the Lord redeems and he restores. And it's like, man, my marriage is greater than I ever dreamed it could be because of the power of Jesus Christ. Our hope is that in our failure and in our brokenness, Jesus paid that debt and he gives us life. Okay, but that's not all he says in this story. And what I want to talk about next is the call Jesus has on our lives. And it's purity, not perfection. It's purity, not perfection. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. You see, here's what I love about Jesus is that he was perfectly full of both grace and truth. He never sacrificed one for the other. He saves, he forgives this woman, but he also calls her to obedience and change. He says, you're not defined by this moment, but you can't stay in this moment. You need to go and sin no more. And church, I want you to hear me. One of my major fears about what's happening in the church in America is I am seeing way too many churches and way too many Christians were just swinging the pendulum to all grace or all truth. Where we're not aiming for both grace and truth. There's some that, that, that that's all truth. And what we wanna do is, is we wanna be angry, we wanna condemn culture, and we wanna define ourselves more by what we're against than by what we're for. That's not what Jesus did that doesn't honor the Lord. And then there's others that like, you know what? I'm just going to affirm everything. Sin doesn't have consequences. God's not holy. Jesus just loves you and wants you to be happy and you live your own life. And God's just gonna be your genie in a magic lamp that's there to bless you. All right, that's not true either. Listen, at Harvest, hear me. There is a deep commitment to elevating the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in our righteousness and not in our effort because if it was, we wouldn't need Jesus. All of us are debtors to the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen? Okay, but listen, there's an equal commitment to lovingly encourage one another towards growth and obedience in Christ. Here's why, because I love you and I care for you and I know that sin destroys and I don't want you to experience that Jesus calls us to go and sin no more. 
You know, it's interesting, I was talking with a Jordan Grotenheis, our high school pastor, this week on Friday. And by the way, I don't know if you were here last week. Didn't he just do an amazing job leading us in God's word? I was so thankful for that. So I'm just honored to be a partner in ministry with him. Love that kid. Um, but here's what he asked me. It was such a, a youth pastor question. He goes, Cal, is it, um, is it awkward for you to talk about sex in front, of, in front of a bunch of adults? And I was like, it really isn't. And you know why that is? Because I'm not coming at a place of anger. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm not mad at anyone. But I also really love you and want you to follow the Lord and walk in obedience because our good shepherd leads us to green pastures and good waters. And when we turn from him, we are running towards the desert. And I don't want that for you. And here's what's amazing. No matter where you are right now, you can make real steps towards purity today. All of us in here can leave making steps towards purity. Well, Cal, what are you talking about? Well, what if you're here and you're single? And you're like, I'm not in a relationship. This isn't a, a part of my life. Well, here's what I would encourage you. A way you can walk in purity is make some commitments before the Lord today. Right? Hey, this is what my relationship in the future is going to look like. Here are hard lines in the sand that I'm going to draw and I'm going to have good accountability in my life and I'm going to get after pursuing the Lord right now because in that moment of temptation, I want to choose faithfulness and obedience rather than momentary sin. Start preparing your hearts to be the type of godly man or woman that your future boyfriend or girlfriend would desire one day. Right? You might be here and you might be dating, and it might be, oh man, we've got to change some things. We've got to have an uncomfortable conversation because we're not walking in a way that honors the Lord, and things have to change because a relationship that's not honoring to the Lord isn't going to end well. Maybe you're here and you're married. Right? How do we move towards purity in our marriage? Well, here's the thing. Could I encourage you? Make sure you're constantly pulling at all of the weeds in your marriage. If there's anything that's a tension point, get after it, fix it, talk about it, love one another, forgive one another, prioritize one another, pursue one another. Make sure that there's nowhere in your life where you're living in a way that's in secret. Make sure that you have people in your life that could ask you anything and you will give very honest answers to. Make it a habit of walking in the light. And if there's things going on in your life in secret right now, confess them, talk about them. Don't wait till you're devoured by the lion before you ask for help. We can absolutely, all of us, make steps towards purity in our marriages. If you're here and you're a parent, engage with your kids. Talk to them, protect them, advocate for them. Roll up your sleeves, engage yourself in the process. The conversation might be awkward, but your kids will love you for it. I promise. Help them. Do what you're called to do. Listen, the call is not perfection. That's what we have Jesus for. He is our perfection. He is our hope. But we are called to grow in purity as we seek to honor God and follow Jesus in our sexuality. All right, and here's how I want to close our time this morning. I want to talk about the key to all of this. And I want to close with the question, it's this. It's what does your heart desire most? See, I think the key to sex and adultery and sexual sin, it all goes back to your heart and what do you desire. It's interesting, if you go back to Proverbs 6 in verse 25, the first warning that Solomon gives is he says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. 
And what he's saying is, is there should be something in our heart that we desire more than anything else. So here's my question. What does your heart desire most today as you are in this room? It's interesting, God gives the nation of Israel a prophecy talking about salvation in the book of Ezekiel. It's not on the screen. I just want you to hear this. Here's what he promises those that are his followers. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. Now look what he says. He goes, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from you and I will give you a heart of flesh. So here's what he promises. He says, for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, he says, he gives us a new heart with new desires. Okay, here's what that means. That for followers of Jesus Christ, we live with a genuine desire. I wanna worship, love, honor, and follow Jesus Christ. We admit that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that God is God, that we are not, that we exist for his glory. So there is a genuine desire. Listen, we're not gonna be perfect this side of eternity, but our heart longs and desires to follow him. And when we sin, we confess and we repent and we take it seriously. Look at me, I get asked all the time, hey Cal, how do I know if I'm actually a Christian? Or how do I know if my kid is actually a Christian? You know, he said a prayer once, but now he's living like this. Like, how can I have certainty? And as I have grown kind of older in ministry, you know what I tell people? I say, what does your heart desire? What do their hearts desire? Because the more and more I am in ministry, it is very, very obvious who followers of Jesus are. You know why? Because they love Jesus and there's a sincere desire to humbly follow him. Listen, there are some in this room right now, I'm going to boldly ask you, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to surrender your heart to the Lord because if you were at all honest with yourself, your life has been one of going through the motions, but your desires are all about you. Maybe it's your reputation, maybe it's your wants, maybe it's how people see you, but you do not have a heart that is turned towards the Lord. And I'm telling you, listen, if you cry out to God, he will listen and he will give you a new heart. He will enter your life and he will save you and he will change you. I know it to be true. That's a decision some need to make this morning. So what we're gonna do is if you're at Harvest, you know how we do this. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna close with a time of worship. And here's all I'm asking. All I'm asking is that you respond to God in a way that's genuine this morning. If you're here and you're like, man, I am so thankful for the work God has done in my life and in my marriage, then stand and raise your hands and glorify him boldly. Look at me. If you're here and you're like, I just need to sit and I need to get real and I need to confess, then stay in your seat. No one cares, no one's judging you. If you wanna come forward up here to the front and get low, please come do that. We would love for that to happen. If you need to talk to someone after the service, if you need to ask someone, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Come do that. We wanna be a church that is open, that is authentic in our response to God's word, amen? All right, I love you guys, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for your word. God, I love that I am part of a community of believers that um, agrees that God's word is an authority. 
And even in the personal and maybe even awkward areas of adultery and sex, that there is a genuine desire. Let's talk about these things. Let's hear from your word. We want to be a people that love you and honor you and glorify. And God, I'm just asking very boldly, would your spirit move? Would lives be changed? Would confession happen? Would repentance be real? Would lives be saved even now as we respond to you in worship? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.